This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The catalogue for the 2020 Classic Yearling Sale is now available. In total, 808 yearlings have been catalogued over three days, 613 in Book 1, 195 in the Highway Session. Book 1 will take place on Sunday, February the 9th, Monday the 10th and the morning of the 11th with the Highway Session beginning as soon as Book 1 is completed. The Classic Sale has produced eight Group 1 winners since 2018, including four Group 1 winning two-year-olds or three-year-olds in Sydney and Melbourne. Of the 808 lots catalogued, 734 are Bob's eligible. To request a catalogue, email catalogue at inglis.com.au or call 9399-7999. Catalogues are also available for the Inglis Premier Sale in Melbourne, March the 1st to March the 3rd. The 2020 Inglis Yearling Sale Round is about to begin. One of the most recognisable sets of colours in New South Wales racing today are the colours of Derby Racing. White with the Derby Racing logo, navy blue armbands with the Derby Racing logo, navy blue cap and that very spectacular white pom-pom. Derby Racing is one of Australia's busiest racehorse syndication companies founded and managed by 46-year-old Scott Derby who early in life was unaware that horse racing even existed. There wasn't a trace of racing background in his family, but the presence of horse racing on television slowly whetted his appetite. His interest in horses increased when he learned to ride ponies on the Southern Highlands, and his interest increased to the extent that he contemplated a future as a jockey, but was quickly informed by the experts that he was much too big. He attended his first race meeting in 1989, by which time he was totally besotted by the theatre of racing. He worked in a racing stable for six months and later tried his hand at syndicating a couple of horses for friends. Derby Racing was formed in 2008. Today, Scott has a full-time staff of five. He buys between 25 and 30 horses a year and he has a client base of some 1,500 people. Let's talk to the man who made it all possible, a bloke who at one stage of his life looked likely to follow his dad into the pizza business. Good morning, Scott Darby. Good morning, John. Do you still fancy a pizza? I love pizza. It's my favourite food, actually, John. <laughs> brought up on them? Well, not quite brought up on them. Uh, the pizza shop actually was only fleeting for the family. Uh, my father actually was a school principal. Mm. and uh, spent all his life uh, teaching, but uh, opened up a, a franchise to help out the family, myself and my older brother, who looked like we were waning from our studies. So uh, <laughs> he was trying to encourage us to get into 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 business in some form. Mm. Well, there's a very busy time coming up for you as the yearling sale round begins. You've probably had your head in a catalogue for many weeks. Yeah, certainly have. Uh, just closing down for another year and you start to pull out the catalogues as they file in 
each week. Um, the English catalogue, the Magic Beans, which is first up and uh, already doing your head in with pedigree after pedigree. Mm. How much pre-sale inspection do you do, Scott? Do you go to any of the studs? Look, we did last year. We didn't get time this year. Um, we had a very busy finish to the year. We would love to get up there. Um, but, uh, look, a lot of people go to the studs because the catalogue is so big at Magic Millions, so they like to see plenty before they get there. Um, we're pretty select in what we're looking to buy up there so we can discount plenty of the, the stallions that won't be popular for syndication. So we're pretty right that within a couple of days inspecting up there, we should see everything we want to see. Mm. It's well documented that you've purchased future Group 1 winners for little money and no doubt you'll be trying to do that again in 2020. Now, the progeny of certain stallions, Scott, will be through the roof. Will you trust a new stallion as long as the maternal side is strong? Absolutely. Yeah, look, very. Uh, I think it's a great opportunity um, to get in on the ground floor, as we call it, with some of those first-season stallions. Some of them are very popular and make overs. There's plenty of stallions there that um, will sell um, for reasonable money and um, you could be just getting into the ground floor of the next schnitzel or reduce choice, who knows. So, um, you know, if you, if you like what you see and it matches up on the physical side and the, and the uh, dam side, then uh, I say go for it. Mm. You had a mate towards the end of your high school days by the name of Gavin McIntosh. Now, Gav was right into racing even then and he had quite an influence on young Scott Darby. Yeah, I suppose I have a lot to thank, Gavin. He's living up in North Queensland, I believe now, and uh, I had no idea about racing until I met uh, Gavin and we're in year 10 and he regularly discussed with our group that he used to go to the races with his father and he invited us along. We all stayed over his place the night before the races and uh, he introduced us to the form guide. We looked at all the, the form and we're going to take our $20 along to, to have some bets with and... Uh, I had no idea what I was looking at or doing, but, geez, I, I remember I was pretty excited. Yeah. Your first day at the races, and I've been able to verify this, was the 4th of October, 1989, probably a Wednesday meeting at Canterbury. It now, was, yes. You had an each-way bet on a $500 pop, and he missed third place by a whisker. Yeah, never forget it. Sir Tibby. I was obviously looking for value and had no idea what the form really meant. I saw the bookies put it up at 500 to 1, which I don't think you see a lot these days. No. And I had my $2 each way, sat up in the stand, and when Sir Tibby made a late run, I knew he wasn't going to win, but he was fighting out trying to, to get to third, and my heart was pounding. And <laughs> I, I think from that moment on, I was hooked, even though I didn't win. Mm, I remember Sir Tibby. He was a chestnut. He was one of those big fat, deep, girthed horses. He never, ever looked fit, even after he'd had half a dozen runs. It was just the way he was built. He was trained by the late Bill Evans. He was ridden on the day we're talking about by Neil Campton, who's long retired. Uh, the horse did finish up winning two or three races. He won a couple at Ipswich, and he dead-heated one day at Kembla Grange. Well, I'll never forget the name. I suppose it's the first horse you've ever backed. You, you never forget it. Um, there are a couple of other horses. I remember in those very early couple of first couple of weeks of punting, a horse called Eastern Classic was very good mm. to me. And 
Ice Cream Sunday, I remember bobbing up in the in the form guide, but really they were the very early, early days where I, I didn't know much at all about racing. Mm. Is it true that you actually made an appointment for an interview with the great man himself, Tommy Smith, regarding a possible apprenticeship? Uh, you turned up at Tullock Lodge and I imagine the heart would have been jumping straight out of the shirt. Well, I'll tell you, it's, look, obviously you get to know who Tommy Smith was, but not to the extent I did later on in life. I mean, being <laughs> no racing background, introduced at the age of 16, sort of uh, heading to 17, I'm 18 years old, absolutely decided by the game and decided for some strange reason I was going to pursue being a jockey. I was 58 kilos <laughs> and uh, I rang many trainers and Sterling Smith was the one who gave me an interview. Mm. I rocked up to Ramwick and he took one look at me and I said, am I too big because I feared I was too big? He said, no, you're fine. He said, but I can't give you a job. Go and see my uncle. Mm. I said, who's your uncle? And he said, Tommy Smith. <laughs> so I turned up at Tullock Lodge. Tommy didn't even get halfway down the stairs before he saw me waiting at the door and said, mate, you're, son, you're too big. Yeah. You're way too big. He said, no, you, you, you can't become a jockey. So <laughs> there I walked with, you know, head between the legs and thought, oh, well, looks like I'm not going to be a jockey. But uh, I, I still didn't give up the dream. Um, you know, sort of a year later, I started working for Clary Connors. Mm. I just wa I just wanted to be involved in the game in some way. And um, I used to bring my riding boots every day. I was a strapper pestering Clary to, to hop on a horse. Mm. Uh, but really didn't know what I was in for because all, all I was trained up for was um, riding hacks at the, you know, at the pony school and whatnot. You know, there was no formal training whatsoever, but I was just keen. I was very keen. Mm. And uh, Clary finally gave me a go one morning. I'd never had my legs so high up in the irons. I, I trotted around the ball ring, nearly falling out of the saddle at every corner with Clary barking instructions to keep my back straight <laughs> the rest of it. I was starving because I knew I had to get down in weight. I'd been dieting for two weeks for this moment. I hopped off that horse and said, it's not for me. I'm heading straight to McDonald's. Yeah. Straight, that was the end. Straight to McDonald's. And, in fact, you went back to work in the pizza shop. I did. The, the early hours, um, I, I absolutely loved being a strapper. I loved being part of it. But the early hours were absolute killer. I mean, it was just in complete contrast to the pizza shop where you work at nights. Yeah. You're a young bloke, 19, wanting to go out and enjoy life and um, the stable life, you know, getting up at 3 o'clock in the morning just had the better. But my, my passion continued to grow for the industry and I, I knew I wanted to be part of it in some way. You had a mate who went to the Scone Yearling Sale one day and he came back with a cult by a horse called Song of Tara. He paid $6,000 for that cult on spec and he really didn't know what he was going to do with him. Now, this was the first time the syndication bug gave you a little bite. What happened? Yes, yeah, so I'm still at the pizza shop at this stage, early 20s. I'd seen in the uh, Telegraph many times um, ads for uh, shares available, six share partnerships, eight share partners. They're the little ads in the live stock section. And uh, this fellow I was helping out, he's a horse breaker, and I was learning a bit about horse breaking. He brought this horse home and said, uh, I said, what are you going to do with it? He said, I, I wouldn't mind 
you know, getting some partners in the horse. And instantly I thought about those ads in the paper and I said, I might be able to help you here. And I said, uh, I might be able to put, put an ad in the paper. I didn't know you needed a licence or anything like that. And he said, oh, well, look, he said, you know, cut it up into eight shares and if you can sell them all, you can have one of the shares, you know, mm-hmm. do what you want with it, keep it or keep the money. So I put the ad in the paper and within about a week and a half, the whole horse was syndicated. And I thought, geez, that was all right. That, mm. that, that worked well, you know. And uh, didn't think much more about it, probably till about two years later, I linked up with another horse breaker uh, uh, who was a good friend of mine at the time, uh, Scott Wade, mm. terrific fella in the racing game. And he had bred an encounter yearling. And uh, same thing, he sort of said, geez, I think I might uh, sell some shares in this year. You know, didn't know how you go about it. I said, I actually do. And we did it all over again. He said, well, look, you know, cut it up into eight shares and you can have two of the shares. Do what mm. you want with them. So mm. I uh, put the ad in the paper and I reckon it took probably two to three weeks. The whole horse was sold. So that was probably the, the early stage of, um, of the uh, idea of becoming a syndicator. I didn't know how you went about it. I saw uh, Denise Martin from Star Thoroughbreds around that time was very successful in syndicating and I thought it could be you know, something I should look at closer. Well, Derby Racing was born after the EI outbreak of 2007, that horrible equine virus which paralysed the New South Wales racing industry. Surprisingly, you went to a ready-to-run sale in New Zealand to buy your first horse. It was a cult by Schwazier. I think he was later known as Illustain. Yeah, it was a... uh Interesting year, 2000 and end of 2007, November 2007, uh, left the pizza shop all behind us and it was actually my wife, Renee, who really encouraged me to uh, start the business up. Uh, went over to New Zealand and purchased uh, a lovely Schwazier cult for 80000 New Zealand. Uh, he went on and won eight races and uh, Derby Racing was often, often going. He went to um, Clary Connors, didn't he, Ellistane, initially, and he, I think he yeah, ran about four yeah. placings for you. Yeah, he was, was. He started off with Clary. I think he had 11 or 12 starts with Clary and was placed a number of times. And um, we probably, you know, he probably just a little bit out of his grade in Sydney. And um, at the time, I'd been watching a young fellow called Stuart Kendrick train winner after winner up in Queensland and uh, I thought this might be a, a chance for this horse to go up and, you know, win his races with Stuart. We linked up and uh, we never looked back. You know, we ended up winning over 100,000 and eight races with Stuart and mm-hmm. we're still together today, Stuart, Kendrick and I. So um, it was a great partnership. It didn't take you long to produce a smart one. You paid $15,000 at an English sale for a filly by Beautiful Crown out of a bluebird mare. She went to Clary Connors and she never took a backward step. Now, Scott, this was a unique filly. Uh, she was so precocious, just get up and go, wasn't she? Yeah, look, I suppose my influence, which we, we haven't touched on, was centred all around Clary Connors. I was absolutely in love with the Golden Slipper. Uh, my first horse that I really followed was Terse and then I fell in love with a horse called Burst. Both won the Slipper for Clary Connors. Mm. And I followed Clary right through until I started working for him. So I guess that passion of the Golden Slipper, the early precocity, um, sort of led me down the path of what I was sort of looking for at sales. And um, 
I remember it very well. That that fully uh, going through the ring. I had a I was I was a big fan of Beautiful Crown at the time. He was only early in his career, and uh, I think in that family you'll find Inspire shows up in that family, which uh, Clary trains. So there was a mm. fair bit of Clary uh, in in the pedigrees as well. So. Um, yeah, she, she was only 15000 actually the cheapest we bought in that first full year of, of purchasing mm-hmm. yearlings. Um, she was broken in late in the, in, in the season. I think July she finished a breaking in. Mm-hmm. She went straight to Clary Connors just for a little bit of a look around mm-hmm. once she was syndicated, but she never went to the paddock. She, she showed ability from the moment she stepped yeah. on the track. I haven't mentioned a name, Scott. Okay. Uh, our, our Joan of Arc. Our Joan of Arc, <laughs> yep. Yeah, we'll never forget her. The first group winner for Derby Racing and and uh, really put us on the map early. Well, she won the Jim Crack Stakes of 2008. Then she ran fifth in that rich English nursery race. And then, very ambitiously, you took her to Melbourne for the famous Maribyrnong Plate. I think Corey Brown rode her there. Yeah, we, we, we had definitely didn't target the Maribyrnong plate. It was all about the English race and, uh, and that would, have, would do her. But she was very unlucky, got stuck on the fence there at Mooney Valley behind the leader, couldn't get out. Mm. So it was really just a trial for us. So Clary said, look, you know, if she pulls up well, we, we might have a look at that race. The race fell right away, mm. something like six runners, and she bolted in there. So mm. within three starts, she's picked up nearly $200,000 in states earnings and, mm. and we're on our way to a golden slipper. She never won again, Scott. Never won again. She was just one of those very good early running fillies. Uh, she did very well in the autumn in placing and she ran in the golden slipper. But uh, as, as a three-year-old, I think they really caught up to her and she struggled to um, recapture that form. Well, you battled along for four or five years with regular winners, forming an association along the way with a bloke called Gerald Ryan. Now, you got Gerald to look at a schnitzel filly for you at the Magic Millions. You told him your bank was $100,000 and that was it. And you were venturing into uncharted waters even at that figure, 100000 Yeah, it certainly was. It's a lot of money to pay for a yearling. I remember it well. It's um, probably the year of our syndication early on there that uh, was a real turning point in the business. Uh, we, you know, we, my wife and I were looking to start a family and, a, you know, it's high risk syndicating horses. Many things can go wrong. And I remember quite clearly that year, we're going to pull back and, uh, try and be a little bit more risk free. So I said to Joe, right, you know, no more than a hundred thousand. Um, he found this beautiful schnitzel filly. I actually wasn't down there at the sale. We're bidding over the phone and, he, he got me right up to 115. I was starting to pay. I said, no more, Gerald. And <laughs> they, they came back again at 120, and Gerald just hit straight back at 125 and knocked down to me. Mm. And I was like, oh, geez, here we go. Uh, okay. And uh, I was okay with that. Um, it wasn't until the horse arrived up at Heritage Park up at New South Wales. Mm. Uh, the, the, the farm manager, Sean McCormick, a terrific fella, he rang me in an absolute panic about this filly arriving. Mm. Absolute panic. Knowing what I'd paid for it, he, he, he rang me and he, he basically had said, I don't think this horse will ever race. Oh. He said, he said this, the, the knees of this filly are so offset. 
Oh, and he he just sent me into an absolute spin. He put me on to his right-hand man, which is Mark Holland, who, who works for me now. Mm. He's a very good friend of mine. And, and Mark said, yeah, look, it's not good. He's, he's, he's a bit over the top with it, but uh, maybe you should come up and have a look. So I jumped straight in the car up to the up to the spelling farm and uh, I was really worried because, you know, as I said, I really wanted to pull back this year and concentrate on a family. Mm. I see the filly and this beautiful body filly, uh, lovely filly, and, she, yeah, she had offset knees. Um, but uh, I think the way Sean was promoting um, the issues really did put some worry in me. And I rang Gerald straight away and I said, look, you mentioned when you bought this filly that someone else was interested in in taking. He said, yeah. I said, look, you know, I told him what what I thought of her and the mm. worries and, and uh, he went off his brain. Mm. I said, look, can can you see if they'll take this filly? And he, he wasn't happy at all. He thought I was really giving away something special. And uh, anyway, the rest is history. Neil Werrett took the, took the filly. Mm. And uh, that filly turned out to be Snitterland. Yeah, twenty starts, eight wins, six placings, one point nine million. She ran second in a Golden Slipper, second in a Galaxy. She won a Group One Lightning. She won a San Domenico, and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, thanks for rubbing in a little <laughs> bit more, John. <laughs> now it was a pretty dark year that year uh, because not only we had Snitterland. I-, I actually remember saying to Sean going back to. Uh, jokingly, I said to Sean, I said, geez, Sean, this horse better not win a slipper or you're in trouble thinking, you know, what's the chance? It was a bit of a joke. But mm. uh, that year when she when she hit the front in the slipper, my heart absolutely sank. There's there's so many trainers and participants in the industry that talk about never being able to win a group one. Mm. And I thought, here I am, I've given away this horse that looks hit the front of the slipper at the 200, only be run down late by Piero. Mm. Not to mention, to rub it in even further, that year was the first year we started syndicating yearlings with Stuart Kendrick. And we went together to the sale at June and uh, bought three yearlings for Stuart for syndication, cheap syndications. Mm. And one of them was a not a single doubtfully I'd picked out for Stu, mm. $17,000. I uh, get off the plane from, from returning from the sale and Stuart rings me and says, listen, that not a single doubt filly you bought for seventeen thousand. What are you doing with it? And I said I'm going to syndicate it for you. And he goes, I've had a heap of calls from my own clients. Did you want to just sell it? And I said, Yeah, go for it. Just take it. I didn't think to say put it in my colours, mm. make it a Derby horse, all the rest of it. You just say, Yep, great, another horse off the books. Brilliant, take it. Mm. That horse turns out in the same year as Switzerland to be Doubt Philly, mm. who runs fourth in the same Golden Slipper, <laughs> second and fourth. Second and fourth. So you'd imagine it really was a turning point for, for myself and Derby Racing because I thought I'd let two really high-class two-year-olds go, one that went on to be a Group 1 winner. Was that my only chance of top-end success? What have I done? By pulling back, my whole motto was, you know, heading in those first few years it was to have a go, have a crack. That's my nature. And here I was pulling back. And was this going to be my big undoing? Well, I'm the sort of person that doesn't, you know, wallow in it too long before it makes me more determined. So uh, mm. I really do believe that year was the turning point of uh, me realising that A, it can be done, and B, 
making me more determined than ever to find a top-end horse. Yeah, and more importantly, you realise that you could source the right horses. Absolutely. You had to find the positive and the negative. If, if, if you stayed in the negative, it was just going to kill you. Mm. It was, you know, terrible to watch that golden slipper with n no colours on those horses representing Derby Racing. And, um, yeah, but uh, if, you, if you look at the positive, exactly right, John. It said to me that uh, it can be done. You're, you're starting to hone your skills the right way. And uh, I think it made me more determined than ever to find that good Group 1 horse. Scott, we'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back in just a moment or two with Scott Darby. Of all the new initiatives introduced in recent years by Racing New South Wales, none have been more widely acclaimed than the weekly Tab Highway races. Introduced four years ago, the Tab Highways have proven to be a tremendous stimulus for country racing stables as new owners constantly look for the right horses to bring to town. At first, trainers like Matt Dunn, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the highways, but nowadays the results prove that many and varied stables have learned to identify the kind of horse they need to travel down the highway. $75,000 in prize money and an assortment of race distances are making these races highly competitive and stimulating healthy betting trends. The Tab Highways are a big part of the new world of Sydney racing. Gerald Ryan trained another nice cult you syndicated by the name of Time for War. He only raced 13 times. He won three, including a Pago Pago, and the Queensland Sires Produce Stakes and about half a million dollars or just under. Yeah, great story. Uh, sourced him at the English Scone Sale of all places. It's been a happy little hunting ground for myself and the team. Uh, myself and my right-hand man, Mark Holland, who's been an integral part of the team, uh, picked him out there. Um, it's probably when Snitzel wasn't at his peak of his powers and uh, we actually had to fight off a spirited bidding uh, war with uh, Mick Malone from Kitchwin Hills, who he ended up standing at after his career. But mm. lovely Colt, um, probably made a little mistake with him. We thought on his female side he would get out to a trip, and after winning the the Pago Pago, um, we bypassed the slipper, thinking he'd be more of a size champagne and and get out. That's what Gerald thought. Mm. I think uh, had we gone the slipper path. It, it, yeah, that's the, certainly the horse he, he really was. He's really a 1,200, 1,300 metre horse on pace, speed and tough. Now, what attracted you to a filly by All-American out of Condesar at the 2015 English Classic Sale? Were you surprised to get her for just $10,000? Oh, absolutely. Look, she was from the Widden Draft. Um, they have quite a big draft there, and we had her marked really highly. I remember she was in the back of the book for uh, x-rays to be done and to pursue her up in the ring. She was very early on in the sale, and for one reason or another, I, I believe we, we sort of valued her around that thirty to 40000 and as you said, All-American at the time really wasn't doing the job. So one reason or another, we, we, we let her go. We didn't end up at the ring trying to buy her. And it was actually a call from Clary Connors that afternoon saying, did you see past in lot 17? I think she was 
Um, and I opened the book and said, yeah, we absolutely loved it. We had a marked highly. Why is that? And he said, well, she's passed in. So we looked her up and they wanted 15000 I I remember giving Anthony a call at Widden Stud and said, uh, look, we'd like to offer 10. And about 10 minutes later, he rang back and said, you've got her at 10, amazingly. So um, mm. I remember we saw her back at the farm to take the photos and videos and he thought, geez, how did we get this at 10 grand? She's quite a neat, well-put-together filly, you know. There was mm. nothing outlandish about her, but she was just a lovely, athletic style of filly. Well, her name became Yankee Rose. You syndicated her to 20 happy and very lucky owners. She won her first two, which included the golden gift with Jason Collard in the saddle, so she was pretty precocious early on. Yeah, she um, she started out her training with uh, Clary before we departed and um, she ended up with Dave Van Dyke and that was our first, one of our first horses with Dave. Um, meticulous trainer. We call him a professor of training. Uh, if you ever get to know Dave, he's he's a fantastic fellow and really, really dedicated to what he does. But um, I think she really surprised Dave. She didn't show a lot in track work, doesn't show a lot in her trials, but her finishing sectionals in, especially in some of those early races, were just phenomenal. Mm. Those first two wins, first sectionals, uh, had, had a lot of the experts absolutely buzzing. Mm. Well, she had a break after the golden gift, then she had two trials and went straight into the slipper. Zach Purton was the jockey and she ran a cracking second, half a length behind Capitalist. Yeah, it was an interesting and ambitious um, program. Dave was adamant that uh, she needed to go first up in the slipper if she was to have any chance. He felt if she was second or third up, she'd be too down for it and he was 100% right. The other the other thing we, we only started to learn about Yankee Rose as racing went on is she was one of those horses that needed encouraging with, with the whip, that the more you sort of got at her, the, the faster she went. And um, in that golden slipper, Zach Purton came back and said, I wish I'd known the more that you sort of encouraged her. She found a line, if I'd, if I'd gone a little bit earlier, I think I could have won mm. the golden slipper. But he also had been fined for over-whip use two races earlier, so I think he was a little bit gun-shy as well. Mm-hmm. Good point. Well, two weeks later, she won the ATC Sires Produce Stakes with Zach Purton again on board. Phenomenal win. We'll never ever forget the first Group 1 win. Um, look, she bolted in. She was, she was home virtually as they straightened. That's how well she was going. Mm. Um, the owners went bananas. We went bananas. And um, it's, a, it's a win we'll never forget. Soured pretty quickly, but um, because she was then a dollar, I think dollar thirty favourite for the uh, Champagne Stakes, mm. and uh, we just started to run into some issues that plagued her career right right for the rest of her, her racing career. She had a hoof hoof problem and was scratched two days before mm. a race that was at her mercy. Well, all of that was forgotten in the spring of her following preparation when she won the champion stakes at Royal Randwick. And Dean Yendel was an interesting riding engagement. Yeah, we, uh, we, we decided to employ Dean because we had the idea if we were to win this race, we'd go to the Cox Plate and we needed a lightweight rider. Mm. And uh, Dave rang and said, who do you suggest? I said, well, if we're going to grab someone like Dean, I'd rather have him on for the spring champion stakes, get a feel for it if we're keen about going to the Cox Plate. 
Mm. And uh, Dean certainly didn't let us down. That was one of the most memorable wins I've been on a racetrack, the way she powered home from, you know, three-quarters of the way back of the field. It was a spine-tingling call, and I'll, I'll never forget it. Yeah, I think it was Dean's first Group 1 too, wasn't it? It was, correct, yes. Mm. Well, she ran third in that Cox Plate of 2016, Winx's second Cox Plate. Now, admittedly, you were beaten eight and three-quarter lengths with Hartnell in second place. Now, when you're dining out on that Cox Plate placing, you don't need to mention the margin, you know. That's exactly right. I mean, running third, we, we sort of, Acted like we'd won it. I mean, it's only a, it's only a dream to be in a race like the Cox Plate, uh, let alone a Golden Slipper and all the other races she'd been in. But um, yeah, the owners were beside themselves. And as it turns out, finishing third to Winks was certainly, um, you know, a great thing to remember, um, especially with the way she went on with her career. Well, Yankee Rose had many a niggling problem throughout her short career. And, Scott, it was obvious something was wrong a long way from home in the Crown Oaks in which she started odds on. Yeah, even getting so far back in the race, it just didn't feel right the whole way through the race. And, unfortunately, um, our worst fears were discovered that she pulled up with with knee chips, bone chips in the knees and uh, needed surgery. Um, Whenever you get something like that and continual issues that she was having, you really start to wonder how much longer you're going to be going. But we gave her the time, the surgery, and, and, and brought her back with not a lot of success. She only had one more run next prep, finished unplaced, retired, and sold to Japanese interests as a broodmare. Yeah, they were, um, you know, we shopped around on the market with her, and they were certainly the strongest um, on her, and it was a great result for the owners. Um Although they would have loved to have seen her race on for a lot longer, the short career she did had in her earnings and, and what she was sold for was just an absolute uh, windfall for the owners and, and something they'll never forget. That brings to a close segment one of our special podcast with Scott Darby. In segment two, we're going to profile the $20,000 filly who gave Darby Racing and a big team of owners the thrill of a lifetime. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.